Well, now I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. We're coming close to the end of our summer series that we've called Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. And today's going to be admittedly a little bit unusual. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Bible. And since our question for today is, why can I trust my English Bible translation? Why can I trust my English Bible translation? And I promise we will get to some concrete answers to that question. But to be honest with you, that's really an excuse to address a much more specific question. Which Bible translations can I trust? Which English Bible translations can I trust? When one translation says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And another says, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. Which one do you trust? Now, just to be clear, a little bit later, I'm going to be mentioning some Bible translations today for all of our benefit. If you happen to be holding one of these less than desirable translations in your lap today, you don't have to smuggle it out. You don't have to slip it into the purse of the woman next to you and just let it go out that way. We just want to grow together and get as close to the original word of God as we possibly can. Now, this morning, I want to just loosely hang our thoughts on eight key words related to the importance of having a Bible in your hands that you can trust. Eight key words concerning having a Bible in your hand that you can trust. The first key word is desire. Desire. Now, we're going to start just a sentence before Nehemiah 8, the end of verse 73 of chapter 7. And when the seventh month had come... The people of Israel were in their towns. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This second and third generation of the exiles have returned. They have something that they haven't had in decades. They have in their midst now qualified Bible teachers. And Ezra, the scribe, is at the forefront of these men. Now, I want you to notice who's the initiator of this large gathering. This is not Ezra trying to get them together. Chapter 8, verse 1 says two times, the people gathered as one man, and they told Ezra to bring the book of the law. They have a deep desire to hear the word of God. We understand that desire. You understand that. Our Bibles are very important to us. We are very blessed to live in the relatively recent era in which the Bible is available for anyone to have a personal copy. And you may have even attached some sentimental value to a particular copy of the Bible that you've had for years or maybe marked up in your own study of the word. Many of you have memorized scripture in a particular translation. And so perhaps when you see or hear a different English translation, that can feel disconcerting to you. I know the Bible is important to you because all of you have chosen to gather this morning with a church that calls itself Grace Bible Church. It used to mean, at least, that the Bible Church was any church committed to the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility, and the authority of the Scriptures that was to be lived out, teaching what the Bible says, and taking it literally the name Bible Church doesn't mean what it used to anymore, so we have to revitalize that name. But we know this. It is in the Word of God, it is in the Scriptures that we learn of Christ, that we learn of the Gospel, that holy God has paid the penalty for the sins of all who would believe on Christ by the sacrifice 
of his son on the cross and that whoever believes on him, whoever receives him by faith will be saved. We learn this in the Bible. It is our sole source of that information. And so we have a desire for scripture. It burns in our heart. There's a second key word. We'll call this word availability. Availability. Chapter 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, meaning probably the children, on the first day of the seventh month. The people requested that Ezra bring the book of the law to Moses. And you might say, what's the big deal about that? We shouldn't take that for granted. And they didn't either. There was a time in Israel's history where no one knew where a single copy of the word of God was. It was during the reign of King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 records that during a remodeling of the temple, the high priest Hilkiah found the book of the law. The book was read to King Josiah and he he tore his clothes in grief because he saw from the law that Israel was so off track, they weren't obeying the Lord in any way, shape or form. And the availability of just that one copy of the law of God led to sweeping spiritual reform across Israel. In the 14th and 15th centuries in England, the few truly saved people were oppressed by the Roman Catholic Church because they kept every copy of the Bible to themselves. And on top of that, it was only in Latin. The the regular, everyday Christian didn't have a Bible. Well, in the 14th century, along comes John Wycliffe in England, and he worked on secret translations of the Bible that were translated into Middle English. We would have a hard time reading it, but it was the Middle English of the time based on the Latin text, not on the original Greek and Hebrew. This was before the printing press, and so handwritten copies had to be distributed. In fact, they became so valuable that if you wanted to rent a copy of the Bible for a day, it cost you the equivalent of a load of hay, enough to to feed many animals. If you wanted to purchase a copy of the Bible, a Wycliffe Bible, it cost a pastor four years of his salary to get one copy. But then along came William Tyndale, Born in 1494, we would call him the official founder of English Bible translation into modern English. Tyndale was a language genius, um, proficient in at least seven languages. He was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest, but he soon came into conflict with Catholicism's view that the Bible should only be in Latin and only be available to priests. And so he had to do his translation work in secret. He had very strict rules of translation. There are rules that we still abide by today, or should at least. The first rule was he translated only from the original Hebrew and Greek text, and the text should be as clear as possible in representing the original text accurately into the English language. He refused to water down the language to make it easy on the reader. He refused to have a dumbed-down version of the Word of God. If a word was hard, he left it in. And he relied upon the readers to discern and on preachers to explain. But he never wanted to be guilty of inadvertently hiding the word of God from the believer. Tyndale was not only a pioneer of English Bible translation, his translation was so popular that it literally impacted our English language. Here are some phrases that Tyndale originally translated that are still used today. Am I my brother's keeper? You are the salt of the earth. 
the signs of the times, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Fight the good fight. And there's a long list of other things that we say today because of William Tyndale in the early 1500s. But not only did Tyndale refuse to water down the language of the translation, if he found there wasn't a good English equivalent, you ready for this? He would make up a new word. He would make up a new word so that he wouldn't thin out the theological complexity given to us in Scripture. And you, you say, well, that's terrible, him making up words. Here are some of the words he made up. Scapegoat, Passover, intercession, atonement. That's a glorious set of words that we have because of his refusal to water down the word. By 1525, copies of Tyndale's translation of the New Testament were being smuggled back into England. He had to leave England to do the translation. They were being smuggled back in shipments of cloth, even hidden in in sacks of flour. Catholic bishops would seize copies and have public book burnings and put out a warrant for Tyndale's arrest. So Tyndale was a wanted man. He began his work on the Old Testament after completing the New Testament And he was tricked out of hiding. He was captured by Catholic officials. He was declared a heretic. He was strangled and burned at the stake at the age of 42. But what a legacy he left. He drove home the need for God's people to have a Bible in their own language. He is probably most famous for telling the Catholic Church publicly, if God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than you do. He is the pioneer of the adamant commitment to translating only from the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and giving us an accurate rendering. There's a third key word we could hang some thoughts on this morning. The word is listening. Listening. Chapter 8, verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gates from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The water gate of Jerusalem was on the east side of the city. It was the gate that you went through to get to the spring of Gihon. To get, it was the main water source. So you went there to get water. And the writer puts this detail here. And I think the best reason we could probably come up with is that we would note that this gathering of God's people is very unusual. It's not in the temple court. It's not in the place of worship. It's at one of the centers of daily life. They gathered where they normally see one another. This is a good reminder that the word of God has to infiltrate daily and normal living. And the law was read aloud for around five or six hours, and it says that the ears of all the people were attentive. Why would they be attentive? They didn't have a copy of the law. Many of them had never heard it, yet they were hungry to hear from God, so they were listening. We can't ever go back to this, but if I were to stand up here and read a chapter of the Bible and not one of you owned a Bible, how hard do you think you'd be listening? William Tyndale had ignited in the English-speaking world a yearning to listen to the Word of God, to be able to read it for yourself and to hear it preached in your own language Well, after William Tyndale was martyred for translating the word of God into English, as always happens with persecution, it had the opposite effect. Instead of stopping English translation, his burning at the stake was basically the fuse that lit the dynamite of an explosion of new English translations. 
Others began refining his work even further. Right around the time of Tyndale's death, Coverdale's Bible by Miles Coverdale, 1535, was in the middle of being printed. Matthew's Bible, which was the 1537 combination of Tyndale and Coverdale, wherever Tyndale had left gaps, that was going out. The Great Bible in 1539 was the first official Bible authorized by the king. Now, it was called the Great Bible for two reasons. First of all, it was authorized by the king, so that made it great, but it was also gigantic. The Great Bible was gigantic because it was, it was the official Bible of England. And you have to remember, we, we can't r- wrap our minds around this too well. The government controlled most of the churches. And so the king decreed that this Bible, the great Bible, is the official Bible of the church. And so it was huge, and it was left on the pulpit. It was also nicknamed the chained Bible, because they would chain it to the pulpit to keep somebody from stealing it. Then you had the Geneva Bible in 1560. This was the primary Bible used by the English Puritans. This was the Bible read by Shakespeare. This was the Bible carried on the Mayflower to America. In 1568, just eight years later, you had the Bishop's Bible. That was produced by the Anglican Church because they didn't trust the Puritans and they didn't believe in the Geneva Bible. So it was just kind of a a, a reaction to it. But of course, the capstone, the highlight of English translation was first published in 1611, the King James Version. The King James Version would be predominant in the English-speaking world for three centuries. And it even led to the misleading and very odd King James-only movement, which still plagues the church today. Just a little side note, the King James-only movement, King James only movement holds to the idea that all other English translations are just revisions of older translations, um, and the King James Version is the only one really translated from the original. Actually, the King James Version is almost entirely a revision of the Bishop's Bible. So it's a, it's a revision also. They did employ Hebrew and Greek scholarship, but they relied on the Bishop's Bible quite heavily. Well, the translators of the King James Version, and it's not so much that they tried to do this, it's just that this was the era in which they lived. The early 1600s were what linguists call the golden age of the English language. This was the age of Shakespeare, the age of playwrights, the age of formal, dignified language. They're just coming out of the dark ages where people are just scratching for survival. And during this Renaissance time, language becomes important and written language becomes elevated. And so it's not that the the translators and the workers on the King James Version said, let's make this really, really formal. They just wrote the way everyone else was writing, ironically. And God gave us this glorious, stylistic, eloquent, dignified, formal translation that elevates the word of God to where it should be. It features beauty of style. It features a a difference in styles. And it's had a massive impact on the English language. We get phrases from the King James Version like fire and brimstone, the root of the matter, a thorn in the flesh, being at your wit's end, a labor of love, clear as crystal, and seeing eye to eye. All those are King James Version phrases. And in fact, the King James Version served as an inspiration to successive translations which sought to maintain those same principles of literal translation while utilizing now several hundred years of scholarship that was available. Most importantly, what was available was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the mid-1900s. You had the Revised Standard Version, the 1946 revision of the American Standard Version. You have the New American Standard Bible, 
which was published in 1971, revised in 1995, the primary goal of the New American Standard, the NASB, was to translate the very words of the original accurately. There was, there was less devotion to literary polish and smoothness and readability like later translations such as the ESV, but the New American Standard maintains itself as really the gold standard of the English Bible. You had the new King James Version, 1982, just a modernized version of the King James while retaining the reverent style of the King James Version. And then you had the English Standard Version in 2001. The primary goal of the English Standard Version was to be a literal translation with more smoothness and flair than the New American Standard Bible. And it accomplished that. For me personally, as a preacher, I preached from the New American Standard Bible for at least 14 years. I'm trying to think back when I started. And my switch to the English Standard Version was purely practical and, frankly, a little bit selfish. I first preached from the English Standard Version in 2010 on a preaching mission trip to England, and my sponsor, our own missionary, Tom McConnell, highly suggested that in England, don't preach from the New American Standard Version. He said, that's not going to go over well. I just stuck with it after that. I don't really remember why. I just kept the same Bible. So that's why I'm preaching from the ESV. Let me give you a fourth key word, probably the most important one today. Fourth key word is inspiration. Inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration says that the word of God are the very thoughts the very words, down to the very letters, down to the very marks in the text given by God literally himself. And so there's a weightiness, there's a gravity, there's a seriousness. How much weight did the people, the Jews here, the the returned exiles, how much weight did they assign to the word of God? Chapter 8, verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkajah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. They built a massive platform. That would have taken weeks for them to prepare. They were eager for the word of God. Why would they take that level of effort? Why was it big enough for a total of 14 men to be on the platform, to take turns reading the, the word of God. It reflected their view of the word as being significant and weighty and inspired. They believed they were going to hear the very words of God, and they were correct, and therefore they prepared well. Well, beginning primarily in the 20th century, Bible translations in many circles took a terrible wrong turn. A wrong turn which did not reflect the inspiration of the Word of God. Versions such as the Living Bible, the New International Version, NIV, the New International Reader's Version, the Revised English Bible, REB, the Good News Translation, GNT, the New Living Translation, NLT, the Contemporary English Version, CEV, and probably the worst offender, the Message Bible. They continue to be popular, they're bestsellers, and they still are today. Now, I want to get into some detail about this because I'm eager for all of us to understand this issue together. First of all, we always commend any attempt to get the word of God into people's hands 
And those translations, and I use the word very, very lightly, that those translations have been a blessing at some level to many. The NIV was the first Bible that I read consistently. It was the first one that I read cover to cover before discovering the New American Standard. Now, to understand this issue, I want to define just a couple of terms, just two of them. There's dozens of terms about Bible translation. I just want to give you two. The first one we have to understand is the term dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence. And it sounds really exciting, actually, but it's a theory of translation based on the assumption that anything in the original text that is unclear or foreign or culturally unrelatable, that the the translation should be dynamic, that it should reflect the idea. Let me put it this way. It should give the same impact to a later reader that an original reader would have in Hebrew or Greek. Now, how they know what that impact is, I don't know. But dynamic is a very deceptive word. Doesn't it sound like the opposite of boring? Sounds like the opposite of stale. But in this case, it means freedom from an obligation to produce, reproduce the actual words of the original in the English language. For example, the Good News Bible translates a phrase you know well. They translate it, you welcome me as an honored guest. There's no way you would know what Bible verse that is. That's actually Psalm 23, 5, you anoint my head with oil. Separates us from the word of God, which, by the way, welcoming you as an honored guest is not what anointing your head with oil means. So there's dynamic equivalence that, that we're going to give the same idea, we hope, in a culturally related, relatable way. The other term, essentially literal translation. Essentially literal translation. This is a translation that works to translate the exact words of the original text, but not in such a rigid or wooden way that violates the normal rules of grammar and sentence structure in the English language. For example, a a literal word order translation of John 3.16 would say something like this, For God did so love the world that his Son, the only unique one, he gave, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish, but may have life age-during. So that makes it a little hard to read. So the essentially literal translation adjusts word orders according to English rules of grammar to give us an accurate but fitting with English grammar version of John 3.16 we're so familiar with. An essentially literal translation is to create a transparent text. What does that mean? It's It's exactly what it sounds like. That an essentially literal English translation is like a clear, clean window through which you can look and see the original Hebrew and Greek text because it reproduces it. And that gives us what theologians call derived inspiration, that the English text is just as inspired as the original text to the extent that it accurately represents the original text. So what are the goals, what are the objectives of the dynamic equivalence Bible translations, like some of the ones I listed for you? I want to dig into this a little bit so that you're educated and you're you're wise in this area. I'm going to give you some of the main goals, and I'm going to do my best to refute each one of them because the bottom line is that the dynamic equivalent translations separate God's people from God's actual words, and that's a big deal. This is the opposite of our key word, inspiration. Here are the main goals, and these are not goals I'm making up. These are from their own explanations. And I'm going to give you seven of them. 
The first goal of the dynamic equivalent Bible translation is make the Bible contemporary and conversational. Make the Bible contemporary and conversational. In other words, use whatever language is in at the time of the translation to use colloquial language, even slang. Now, what's the reasoning behind this? Eugene Nita, he's a Bible vocabulary scholar instrumental in the Good News translation, he writes this, quote, The average reader is usually much less capable of making correct judgments than is the translator who can make use of the best scholarly judgments. And you kind of say, well, I understand that. I I understand I'm not a Bible scholar and I need to rely on them. Here's a problem. What about when all the scholars disagree? When you introduce opinion and guessing at the dynamic that the original was supposed to cause to the original reader, you then have a problem. For example, Psalm 77, 33 in the ESV says he made their days vanish like a breath. This is poetic symbolism in a poetry book in the Bible. But other translations translate vanish like a breath as be a failure or live in futility or have emptiness or experience calamity or be cut short. So which one is it? Now, first of all, all of those erase the poetic image of vanish like a breath. And second, they disagree with each other. And yet, according to Eugene Nita, the scholars are best able to judge meaning, so we have to rely on them. Can we just simplify this? God said what he meant to say. And we don't have to, we don't have to edit God. All we have to do is give a clean, clear window through which to see the very words and the very phrases God intended. Did Jesus say, not a single vague thought from Scripture will pass away? No, he said not a dot, not a mark of the pen will pass away. That means not a single detail, which means they're all important. Here's a second goal of the dynamic equivalence. It's to change figures of speech into direct statements. Change figures of speech into direct statements, meaning that the figure of speech is lost and the so-called translation now becomes interpretation. It becomes a commentary. For example, Philippians 4.1, Paul says that the Philippian church, he says to them, you are my joy and my crown. That's symbolic language. They're not actually walking around as crowns with little legs and arms. It's symbolic language. You're my joy and my crown. The Good News Bible says, how happy you make me and how proud I am of you. It's not anywhere near what the original says, which, by the way, that's not what being my crown means. So they made an interpretive decision, and it was the wrong one. In the English Standard Version, Psalm 1-1, you're very familiar with this, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do you catch the symbolism there? It goes from walking to standing to sitting. It's your slowing down. The, uh, the opposite side is the sinner slows down from walking by sin to standing next to sin to sitting around with sinners. And the opposite is true. You're blessed if you're not one of those guys. That's a clear poetic picture of diving into the degradation of sin. But the Good News Bible says, Happy are those who reject the advice of evil people, who do not follow the example of sinners, or join those who have no use for God. They just discarded the progressive metaphor of walking, standing, and sitting. They got rid of it. And you give the Good News Bible to a brand new believer in Christ, and you say you should read Psalm 1. Can you believe this? He would never know about the 
walking and standing and sitting. Why is this? Eugene Nita, the Good News Bible is so bad that he had to write a whole book on how to use it. He wrote a book called How to Use the Good News Bible. And he says that the translators changed Psalm 1, verse 1, because, quote, the metaphors are not understood and seem strange to many people. Now, this is actually a very epic statement. What does this mean? It means that the modern reader now trumps the biblical author. It means that Bible translators are somehow capable of deciding what all people can or cannot understand. They make this decision for you. That Bible translation should be geared to lower reading levels, not higher. That readers are incapable of learning or being educated. And that translators need to correct the original because modern readers can't understand it. Can I put it this way? Nita's book on how to understand the Good News Bible is basically could be subtitled, Why You're an Idiot and You Need My Bible. There's a third goal of the dynamic equivalence crowd. Blend interpretation into the text itself. Blend interpretation into the text itself. Why? To supposedly to make the Bible more immediately understandable. And you might say, well, that's a good goal. Well, there's a problem. Because now you as a Bible student, if you're trying to exegete the text, if you're trying to go word by word, phrase by phrase, you're trying to interpret Scripture on the same level as their interpretive changes. And you don't know which is which. Dynamic equivalent translations regularly substitute something in place of the original text. For example, Ecclesiastes 12.5 says in the original that the almond tree blossoms. The Good News Bible says your hair will turn white. And that could be what the almond tree blossoms means, but the original reader will never know that the author intended the image of a blossoming almond tree, and it robs the reader of that image. Here's a fourth goal, and this one should chap your hide. It is to eliminate theological vocabulary. They have a goal of eliminating theological vocabulary. 1 Timothy 2.6 says in the English Standard Version that Jesus is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. The concept of ransom is weighty and heavy with the doctrine of justification. But the Worldwide English Bible says he gave his life to set all men free. You just lost the soteriological concept of ransom. One high-level proponent of dynamic equivalence said this, that, quote, the unsophisticated reader is likely to be grateful at being delivered from theological subtleties in this translation. In fact, the simple English Bible says in its preface that they have cut out what they call religious words. Here are words they cut out, baptism, church, justification, and redemption. You see that these Bibles are actually separating people from the gospel. There's a fifth goal. I don't know if this should chap your hide, but it might irritate you just a little bit. Reduce the vocabulary level. Reduce the vocabulary level. What is this, what is this saying? It says that the dynamic equivalent translators think they're more able to communicate God's revelation than the original authors who were superintended by the Holy Spirit were. The preface to the New International Version, I'll just give you an example, says that, quote, for most readers today, the common phrases, the Lord of hosts and the God of hosts have little meaning, so they substitute it. For example, in the ESV, 
The translators give us in 1 Samuel 1.3, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies. That's what that means. But the NIV says this. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Why do they say this? Because they would say that nobody knows what the Lord of hosts means. Yeah, you do. You just heard somebody tell you. It's the God of the armies. This is a totally different Hebrew word. The Lord of the hosts means the God of the armies of heaven in the context of Hophni and Phinehas, wicked priests against whom God is about to do what? Go to war. The translators didn't even try to find the best English equivalent to the Lord of hosts. They just decided that they would substitute a totally different word. What does that mean? It means that is not the word of God. It's their word. Here's a sixth goal they have. Keep the Bible current and relevant. Keep the Bible current and relevant. This will go back in the should chap your hide uh, category. The preface to the Message Bible says this. This version of the New Testament in the contemporary idiom means the language of the keeps the language of the message current and fresh and understandable in the same language in which we do our shopping, talk with our friends, worry about world affairs and teach our children table manners. If you buy a brand new message Bible, it has a dust jacket and on the dust jacket it says that this translation quote breathes new life into the Bible. That the Bible needs CPR, that the Bible needs resuscitating. And they're the ones to do it. The preface to the New Living Translation, the NLT, says, quote, metaphorical language is often difficult for contemporary readers to understand. So at times we've chosen to translate or illuminate the metaphor. And so in other words, for example, one you're very familiar with in the English Standard Version, Matthew 6, 22 and 23, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? These are the very words that Jesus spoke. But in the Message Bible, the same passage says, Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust... Your body is in a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. Pull the blinds on your windows? Are you kidding? Nobody had blinds when the Bible was written. How disgusting to say that the Bible needs to be made relevant. You know what my Bible says? It says in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is not a footnote that says, needs my help to do that. Charles Spurgeon said, you don't need to defend the Bible, you just need to let it out like letting a lion out of the cage. One more goal. Seventh goal is to cater to the worst readers in society. Cater to the worst readers in society. The preface of the Contemporary English Version Bible says, quote, Statistics released by the National Center for Education, well, there we go, let's let them tell us how to translate the Bible, indicate that almost half of U.S. adults have very limited reading and writing skills. 
If this is the case, a contemporary translation must be a text that an inexperienced reader can read. What do you get when two generations of Christians have been raised on dynamic equivalence? You get a profound ignorance of what the Bible actually says, what God has actually said. It is better to teach and to educate. Who is the first one to try to subtly alter the word of God? You remember? Starts with an S and ends with Aten. <laughs> Satan. He's the first one to give a dynamic equivalent translation. Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. God said not to eat of one particular tree. And altering the word of God was the very basis for the first deception and sin, and Eve bought it. And there's a dangerous implication to this catering to people Assuming they aren't smart enough to read the Bible for themselves, they relieve you of the need to study and to interpret Scripture and to dig into Scripture and to ponder. They certainly relieve you of the need to hear preaching that interprets Scripture. That as long as you have this particular quote-unquote translation, you don't need to think, you don't need to ponder, you don't need to dig, you don't need to pray, and you certainly don't need expository preaching to help you understand the passage better. Dynamic equivalence blatantly denies the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Here's a fifth key word. Respect. Respect. Chapter 8, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. There's no mention that Ezra asked the people to stand. They just stood that is respect. Why, why were they standing? Well, they were acting as if they were in the presence of God because his words were going to be read, and they stood for six hours. In Scripture, the removal of the Lord's word, the removal of his revelation is regarded as disaster, that God's wrath has come. Micah 3, verse 7, Amos 8, 11 and 12 God's people didn't want to listen to the word of God, so he took it from them. No more prophets, no more preaching. One king told the prophet Amos, I'm sick of your preaching. You can go preach somewhere else. Just don't do it around me. And Amos prophesied from God, then the word of God will be taken. See, being separated from the words of the Lord is a curse. And yet that's what the translators of the dynamic equivalent Bibles have done. Let me boil this down. For dynamic equivalent translations, the basic question is, how would we say it? But for the translators of the essentially literal Bible, the question is, how did God say it? Big difference. And by the way, preaching from a dynamic equivalent Bible means you're actually preaching from an imaginary Bible that doesn't actually say what the author's intended, and yet you're saying it's the word of God. The preacher's job is to take the ancient, glorious, inerrant words of the biblical authors and apply them in terms of today's language, culture, and idioms, but that's the interpreter's job. That's the preacher's job, not the translator's job. We always start with what God said. I'm thankful for my first study Bible. It happened to be an NIV study Bible. I'm thankful for it. it. It got me started studying the Word of God. In fact, the MacArthur Study Bible has even published an NIV version. 
but they were approached, and this was the deal. Yes, we'll put the MacArthur Study Bible in the NIV, but all the study knows to get to correct the countless translation errors. So if you get an NIV Study Bible, all the notes say, it should say this. I don't know what the point of having it is, to be honest with you. Why has the NIV been so popular? Well, there's two reasons for certain. First of all, it's one of the greatest marketing jobs in all the history of the Bible, marketed as a readable Bible. It was marketed as, as being a, 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 uh, an alternative to the dusty King James Version. But the second reason was timing. The NIV came out in the mid-70s, just before the seeker-sensitive movement was started in earnest with the opening of Willow Creek Church in Chicago in 1975, and the two went very well together. Let's put a simple Bible in people's hands that's written on a sixth grade reading level while we invite unbelievers to church to hear simple messages about how wonderful they are. A Bible concerned with pleasing the culture going right along with churches concerned with pleasing the culture. It was a match not made in heaven. But it embodied what's wrong with the dynamic equivalence model. It represented a shift to being loyal to the audience of Scripture rather than to the author of Scripture. That's a big shift. That is not respect for Scripture. That is not respect for the author. There's a sixth key word. We'll call this one response. Response. Chapter 8, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The response speaks for itself. The word of God had penetrated their hearts. They, they were stunned that God had spoken to them with words they can understand. And they answered in agreement. They said, Amen, Amen. We agree, we agree. They lifted their hands, bowed their heads, and went down to the ground in worship. This is to be understood as one motion. And listen, this was not the happy hand raising that we think of in our misguided cultural understanding. This was the response of a people who were devastated. Verse 9 says they were weeping and mourning. They're not happy at this moment because they've just heard for six hours how their lives are not conforming to the word of God. And they're convicted to their socks. But their response to the word of God is very instructive to us. Very humble. There aren't a lot of essentially literal English translations comparatively. The the most well-known King James Version, New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, New American Standard in ESB and English Standard Bible, English Standard Version, ESV. The goals of these translations are much more simple. I don't have to take time to go through them because they don't really have a lot of goals. What they have are presuppositions and beliefs. And here are the beliefs that have driven the essentially literal Bibles, that the Bible is worded exactly the way the divine author intended it. That the Bible is an ancient book penned exactly when God wanted it to be. You read uh, dynamic equivalent Bibles and you get the idea that, wow, isn't it a shame that parts of the Bible were written 3,500 years ago? No, it's not a shame. That's exactly when God decided to write it. It's an ancient book and to try to modernize the Bible by hiding what it really says creates the false impression that the Bible is all about me instead of all about God. They have the principle that the Bible should confront my conception of spiritual reality rather than conforming to what I already believe. 
rather than giving me the tickling ears Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 4. And they have the belief that God uses the Holy Spirit to help the reader. It's the doctrine of illumination and uses teachers and preachers of the word of God to help the reader. There's another key word. We'll call this one trust. Trust. Verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabed, Hanel, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Now, you might notice that with one exception, the names in this list are different than all the men who were on the platform with Ezra. And it includes the Levites, meaning more than just this list of 13 more men. They were helping the people understand what they heard while the people remained in their places. This is a strong implication of a small group ministry, of breaking up into groups while the teachers circulated throughout the people, uh, reading the word, answering questions, and teaching. They had just heard the word of God from a trustworthy copy of the word, and now the people were trusting Bible teachers to explain it to them. I said we would get to this, and so now we will. On the subject of trust, Let me give you seven reasons that you can trust your essentially literal translation of the Bible. We've covered all of them already. I'm just giving you a list. We've already talked about every one of them. Seven reasons you can trust an essentially literal translation of the Bible. First reason, they are a window to the original. They're a window to the original. They show you what the original text says. On the rare occasion that the translation contains something other than what the original said, there is a reason for it, and they'll put it in a footnote. Footnotes will also indicate long-debated translation issues. There aren't very many of them. Here's a second reason you can trust your Bible. These Bibles make full Bible study possible without hidden interpretation. Makes it fully possible. A, A dynamic equivalent Bible is like buying a jigsaw puzzle that says 500 pieces on the front and has 100 pieces in the box. There isn't enough. But the essentially literal Bible allows you to study the Bible. It's the third reason. They keep theological terms and concepts. They keep these concepts. You can build a theology of justification on Romans 3.25 in the ESV. We are justified by his grace as a gift. You cannot build the theology of justification on the contemporary English version, which says God treats us much better than we deserve. That's not the doctrine of justification. Here's the fourth reason. You're reading what the Bible writers actually wrote. You're reading what the biblical writers actually wrote. I've never seen anybody write on this, but I have to wonder if the Apostle Paul was to read the message, if he wouldn't get a little bit irritated. That that's not what I said. Here's a fifth reason. The literary qualities of the original are preserved. The literary qualities are preserved. Why do we have symbols in the Bible? Because God wanted them there. Why do we have poetry in the Bible? Because God put it there. It's what God intended. Here's a sixth reason. The dignity of Scripture is preserved. The dignity or the loftiness of Scripture is preserved. In the English Standard Version, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the Contemporary English Version, Jesus says, Listen, I'm standing and knocking at the door. That's not dignified. And as we've already said, the seventh reason, the doctrine of inspiration is honored. The doctrine of inspiration is honored. Verbal and plenary inspiration that every word and every section, the whole of scripture is inspired. 
The Bible calls itself the word of God, not the vague phrases and thoughts of God. Jesus said in John 6, 63, that the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Let me give you one more key word, and then we'll finish up this morning. This word is preaching. Preaching. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is, by the way, probably the clearest explanation of expository preaching in all of the Bible. These are men circulating throughout the people, and they're doing three things, and they're simple. First, they read from the text. Second, they read from the text clearly. This is a word that means by giving explanation, or it can mean paragraph by paragraph. And they gave the sense. Now, some feel that it's possible this could have meant they were translating from Hebrew to Aramaic, which the younger generation likely spoke. That's not what it says here. I think there's a much bigger and better idea. It's a word that means to give insight, to give success, to give discretion, to give wisdom. In other words, they read the text, they explained the text, and they applied the text. That is expository preaching. That's the classic definition. And what was the focus? The text, the text, the text. Not what some guy thought you should think of the text. In 1959, a group of scholars and pastors were organized by the Lockman Foundation to start work on what would become the New American Standard Bible, the literal translation I've told you about. It wasn't concerned with smoothness and flow, but more concerned with a totally literal representation of the original languages. It was the very first major English translation to incorporate the wealth of information now gleaned from the recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, these are scrolls of the Old Testament books, much older than previous manuscripts, and they, they show us that the Old Testament we have hasn't changed at all. In 1971, the complete New American Standard was released, and in a few years, it was the number one best-selling Bible in the English-speaking world. Soon, many well-known expositors were switching to the New American Standard, including John MacArthur, who had preached for years from the King James Version. In 1995, the NAS did an update, basically removing the these and the thous. They left those there in honor of the King James Version. Well, in 2020, just a couple of years ago, the Lockman Foundation, 316 Publishing, and the John MacArthur Charitable Trust met to discuss an update to the NASB 95 to preserve accuracy while going toward even more readability. They used the NAS 95 as a guide, but translators checked and double-checked against the original languages. These were around the world, by the way. Then they sent those revisions to other scholars as well, and so there was even more improvement in the total accuracy and literalness. They stayed with the philosophy that a translation doesn't replace Bible study, doesn't replace pastors and teachers, but depends on believers to study and to understand and to live out the word of God. And in beautiful fashion, this update of the NAS 95 renders grammar and terminology in contemporary English as long as it accurately represents the original. When that's not possible, footnotes give you the more literal, stiff uh, kind of rendering. But in addition to that, there are some things being done that have never been done in Bible translations in English before. The NAS 95 has gotten rid of some of the traditional translations of certain words. In the Old Testament, the long-held tradition of masking the name of God, Yahweh, with the all capitals Lord, has been eliminated, and God is now, as rightly should be, called by his name 6,800 times, that he is Yahweh. 
Now, in the New Testament, when the Greek term kurios, or Lord, is used to translate Yahweh from a quotation of the Old Testament, there's always a footnote to tell you that. But in the original New Testament, kurios, or Lord, was used, so they retain it there. So there's good logic. The tradition of masking or minimizing the term doulos, calling it bondservant, that's been abandoned. It more accurately means slave. And you can understand why English translations are hesitant to use the word slave, but it means slave. And this is important. This is an important part of our theology because we were once slaves to sin, not paid servants of sin. It also highlights that we are slaves of Christ, our total submission to him. This update goes back to the original units of measurement and money. You get footnotes explaining the conversions of those units. He uses the very latest edition of the best Hebrew Bible in all the scholarship of just the last couple of decades. The Old Testament gives much more distinction of verb types as much as is possible in English rather than just lumping a bunch of different Hebrew verbs into one generic translation. And the New Testament does the same thing. The bottom line is is that this revision of the New American Standard 95 is the single greatest English Bible translation since the Bible has been translated into English for the past 700 years. There is none like it. It has been produced to preserve the legacy of the King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the NASB, the ESV, and the few other essentially literal translations. It's been produced to give a legacy to English-speaking Christians of a Bible that is the clearest window ever produced into the mind of God in an English-speaking Bible. And so the publishers are, as you've already guessed, calling this update of the New American Standard the Legacy Standard Bible. Our commitment at Grace Bible Church to the loftiness and holiness and the excellence of the Word of God continues. And so on uh, Sunday, September 11th, I'm going to be introducing us to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at uh, the first series we're calling The First Coming of Jesus Christ, uh, The First Coming of King Jesus, rather. And on September 11th, I'm going to switch to preaching from the Legacy Standard Bible. I spent time talking to the publishers. I spent time talking to some editors. I spent time talking to the head of the translation committee. I've spent months talking to people because I don't make this decision lightly. And I'm convinced that this is an absolutely right move. This is a a bit of a return home for me because I preached for almost 15 years from the NAS anyway. Now, if you don't already own a copy, the Grace Equip Bookstore has gotten some good deals from 316 Publishing. They can help you out. A little secret, there's also a free app And I hate telling you that because you're going to get your phones out while I'm preaching. But uh, if it's not in the budget quite yet to get a a Bible for church and LSB, then you can rely on that. But here's what we rely on. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that not one dot, not one mark of the word of God will pass away. And here we are with the greatest English translation in the 700-year history of English translation. God is gracious. God is kind that he has preserved his word to us. Because remember what we said? That this is the only place we know the gospel. This is the only place. In this Bible are the words of life and the words of salvation. I hope that what this has done for you is to create trust in you for your essentially literal Bible and also to elevate your love for the word of God. That's my prayer. Let's pray together and then we'll enjoy the Lord's table. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for our Bibles. We we can't even really imagine what it would be like to be wandering through the darkness with no hope, no help.
And so, Lord, we ask you now, having learned of the Lord's table from the scriptures, we ask you to bless this time as we remember what is really the the pinnacle of our faith, the death of Christ. Our precious Savior, the Word made flesh, and he gave his flesh for us. He gave his life for us. And so, Lord, we pray for somber and for reverent and for worshipful hearts as we come to the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.